What on earth is a soft skill anyway? Presentation skills, time management, goal setting, report writing, personal impact, personal branding, learning to learn, memory. Unless you know who you are, you will not have that complete toolkit. What soft skills do you need to succeed as a leader in science? The views expressed in this podcast are my own thoughts and opinions. They do not reflect the values of my employers. Welcome to the Crossover Connections with Jack Wayne podcast. My name is Jack. We talk about the business of science and how this flows over onto all of our work and informs the jobs of the future, irrespective of whether or not you are a working scientist. Today, we're talking about this recurring theme that's coming up again and again, the idea of soft skills. I don't really know what soft skills are technically defined as because I think that has the implication that there are hard, more rigorous skills that you can have in any kind of profession. And these soft skills are these intangible, transferable things that are applicable towards all of these different industries. Before we talk about soft skills, let's acknowledge that hard skills obviously can be hard to attain, yes, but that does not mean they're necessarily more rigorous. They are a professional set of knowledge, professionally developed skills after years of accredited training training. These are discipline-based things that normally you learn by obtaining some type of qualification through a big institution like a university or a training provider. And these hard skills are increasingly being devalued by employers because in a competitive hiring landscape, every person who's applied for a job probably meets that requirement of these hard skills. They've got the right degree, if they've got the right major, they've got the right amount of work experiences, but it's all of these other intangibles, these soft skills, these communication skills, these people skills that we need to foster in a culture that promotes growth and upper mobility rather than just finding these people that are amazing on paper, but in a team environment, they are very difficult to work with. I think this mentality is actually a lot rarer in science than it should be because science is still viewed in many areas as a solo individualistic effort where it's an individual tortured genius working alone till the wee hours of the morning until a eureka moment hits and they make the breakthrough but modern science is by default a lot more team-based a lot more collaborative very rarely is one scientist a master across all of these different domains and you need that really great ability to collaborate to find points of common interest to find leverage to build upon these partnerships it's these soft skills that will elevate all of the science and all of the innovation that takes this work to the next level and indeed people from any kind of field it doesn't have to be scientists would benefit from these soft skills and have already been benefiting from these soft skills i think scientists can take a leaf and take a page out of these other people books and bolster our employability to really improve the softer side of our professional identity. Today, we're going to go through five soft skills that I found to be very useful in my career as a college professor, scientist, YouTuber, and podcaster, and in 2020, I was named the Australian University Teacher of the Year. So relating to people, empathizing with different types of students, and talking to different stakeholders, that's part of why I've been successful up until this point of my career. And one of the great places to find this hive of brainstorming is either on Reddit or on Quora. I think Quora tends to be a little bit more professional based from a question someone posted on Quora as a scientific researcher. What are some of the most common soft skills one needs to learn. The thread is linked in the show notes below. You can go read it in your own time. What I found is most insightful is the broad range of soft skills that these people are identifying. I'm not going to read every single one. If I just very quickly list some of these out, presentation skills, time management, goal setting, report writing, personal impact, personal branding, learning to learn, memory, 
overcoming procrastination, decision-making, persuasion skills, communication skills, business networking. This is a long list of soft skills. And again, it can be very tempting to think this is all overwhelming. The hard skills are already so hard to learn. I've got to manage all of these soft skills that seem to have very imprecise measurements of how good a communicator you are. It's kind of a little bit difficult to measure. That's why soft skills are not really emphasized. And that's why it is really a skill shortage that we're seeing in this soft skill side of the demand equation. The number one soft skill within my list of top five soft skills for success in science has to start with leadership. This article from Scientific American talks about how to be a great leader in science. First of all, there's many different leadership styles. You could prefer to be a micromanager or you could prefer to give your employees or mentees more room to be self-regulated and autonomous in building their confidence. And then when they come to you, it's at these high decision-making touch points that your advice is more of a guidance rather than a strict dogmatic dictatorship kind of setup. This opinion article is interesting in how it portrays the different elements of science leadership. Types of tips they give about understanding the constraints of leadership in a very pressurized environment where you're competing for resources, you're competing in terms of time, and it's a race to the finish line for the first group in the world to make this innovative discovery. The leadership strategies have to be a little bit different than some other industries where the pressure and the technical complexity maybe isn't quite so demanding. First part of leadership is know what you value in a work environment because different leaders have different qualities that they want to define in their work environment. Some leaders might want to value trust and openness, whereas other leaders might want to prioritize kind of secrecy and internal competition. I would prefer the former, but your mileage may vary. You might prefer the latter. Be intentional and budget the time, both in terms of the time to do the work, as well as the time to connect with the people within your team, creating space for everyone while cultivating a collaborative spirit and a safe environment. In science, we fail nine out of 10 experiments. So if you're not fostering that environment, it can be very demotivating very quickly. And you might be selecting for individuals that might not be the best individuals to succeed under normal circumstances, but they could just potentially be the most difficult to work with others. So they could kind of push others out and do things their own way, more sociopathic, who knows? So you might be selecting for these traits that in the short term might be very productive, but in the long term won't build a sustainable team culture that is going to be set up to succeed for the long run. Leadership is a little amorphous. One person's version of leadership would very much not work in a different setting. If we move on to the next soft skill for scientists to succeed, that has to be time management. No one teaches you how to time manage all the way through high school, all the way through uni, all the way through your first few jobs, I'm guessing, unless you're working in a private corporation where you're counting billable hours. Within academia, we are not at all the best at time management. All of these very different tasks that we need to manage, each of which requires a different type of cognitive burden, and we're always juggling these different balls. The kinds of strategies that tend to help manage our workload and help manage our time and in turn our stress is to set priorities and to try and focus on urgent tasks with the appropriate amount of effort. But the thing here is to not confuse urgency for priority. Just because something is urgent doesn't mean that it's going to impact your long-term vision. Something that's very urgent but very easy for you to take care of in the moment, that might force you to lose focus and distract you and take you another two hours to get back on track and do that big 
picture thing. It is not just finding all of the fires you can put out and putting out all the fires first before moving on to big picture things. It's to have a very clear system of what type of tasks command your attention first and foremost. And hopefully you bias that towards the big picture things that will move the needle for you in a week, a month or a year's time rather than very small things that you're dealing with that will only help you get to the next day, but really have no real bearing on your long-term trajectory. Another tip for time management is to break up your tasks to avoid procrastination. And this is where we can take a leaf out of student's book using the Pomodoro technique. You're studying for 25 minutes and then having five minutes forced fun where you're doing anything but work. And the idea that your mind knows in 25 minutes time is gonna get a forced break that actually forces forces you to focus in a more concentrated way for those 25 minutes, knowing that there is light at the end of the tunnel. And if you practice this over time, your focus can expand beyond that 25 minute time window. Maybe it's closer to 30 minutes or 40 minutes or two hours before your break. And that is how you can train your focus over time. Making a record and having a calendar is also really, really powerful. Prioritize something to make sure that it is in your to-do list. Just writing it down is not enough. You need to actually block out time in your calendar and you can block it out with whatever name you want to call it but other people have to see that in your calendar and know hey this is something that this person has prioritized and it is not something set aside for some other tasks that we can just fill the calendar with other small trivial things that again don't move the needle one week months years from now. And that record of your daily routine can be just something personal in your own notebook or your own calendar, but hopefully it's something that's public facing so your team can see it as well and they can in turn use that approach to block out time in their calendars to prioritize the things that will move the needle for them. And that in turn will then move the needle for you as the leader. The last way of improving your time management skills is learning how to delegate. And I'll be honest, this is something that I'm personally still working on. Passing a task on to someone else and trusting that they can do it at least 70% as good as you is something that I really have trouble with. Uh, I really have kind of trust issues, not in the abilities of the people I work with, but very much in my own indecision about exactly how I want to do it. And I want to have final say, so final cut, if you like. So that's kind of where my own emotional vulnerabilities lie in this kind of thing. But we can't do it all. As you assume leadership positions, finding people and putting them in the right positions to succeed and giving them tasks that you know they will be able to do better than you in six months time in a really focused way if that's all they're doing that is a real skill as well that's another soft skill to be able to spot talent putting them in positions to succeed and of course we can't talk about soft skills in science without talking about science communication or communication more broadly and to illustrate this point i'm going to take you back to the 1940s i tried to capture in a video about failing forward the discovery of the first antibiotic linked here. Alexander Fleming made the discovery of penicillin, but he couldn't purify it. It wasn't until almost 10, 15 years later where a couple of other scientists, Howard Florey and Ernst Chain, they were able to purify the penicillin enough for it to be stable and enough for it to be able to be bottled up to be sent off to do some more clinical trials because you don't want to just use a bit of mold, secrete a drug and start adding it to patients and help treat their skin infections without some kind of test in place. So Florian Chain were able to distill it and purify it to a point where it was stable enough to be able to test it on more people. This was against the backdrop of the 1940s where World War II was happening and raging. They were dying from wound infections. So something like penicillin designed to kill the bacteria that live on the skin could save millions and millions of allied troops lives. To be able to service millions of soldiers, they weren't able to do it 
at the University of Oxford where they were doing their initial experiments. Florian Chain needed to partner with Big Pharma in the US to massively upscale the production of penicillin. And what Flory walked into was actually a hornet's nest of internal politicking because the big pharma companies that he went to talk to in the US, many of them were already working on their own version of penicillin. And there was this competitive jealousy or competitive suspicion. Also, they were coming from the UK and these companies wanted to make money. They wanted to be able to use their own pipeline of penicillin and purify it and make a lot of money and help their country survive the war. Flory's scientific expertise in that he already had a ready-to-go penicillin actually made the situation worse. It wasn't his hard skill of scientific bona fides that convinced these pharma companies to put down their corporate espionage minds and to really collaborate with Flory. It was his ability to communicate, to engage with stakeholders, to engage with politicians that formed the task group with the US government and industry and different parts of Great Britain to really allow the exchange of ideas between these competing industries. This was what led to the massification of penicillin production. It was Flores' communication skills, this soft skill rather than his hard skill that really allowed this chapter in history to get across the line and for penicillin to be mass produced to get across D-Day and win the wars, essentially. How can you learn the communication skills to be able to survive, hopefully not in that kind of life and death world war situation, but just survive in your next pitch for a grant or your next job interview. It comes down to getting the reps. Being able to teach and give lectures was the biggest advantage because this is how most academics talk to the most number of people and teaching students and getting feedback on that process is one of the most effective ways. Getting teaching opportunities is not that easy to do. Certainly if you're a young academic, a young early career researcher, public speaking opportunities are far and few between. One of the best ways of doing this is something that I've been advocating for recently is to join conversation classes. My local library every weekend runs a conversation class for people where English is either their second language or it's an additional language that they speak and they're looking to speak to people who are native English speakers or I guess it doesn't have to be English, it can be any other language. Go talk to people. In fact, you can sign to some services whether it be through Skillshare or other of these online platforms where it's kind of like an online tutoring conglomerate. Your job is just to sit there and talk to them and you could use that in any way you want. You can either ask them questions or you can respond to the questions they ask of you and keeping that conversation going, this kind of communication speed dating, a forcing function to deliberately hack your way to become better at this art and skill of communication. Next soft skill that will help scientists succeed is adaptability. It is defined as the new competitive advantage in this very serious article from Harvard Business Review, which I'll be honest is a little over my head. It is linked to the show notes below for those of you who are smarter and more elitist than I am. And it goes through and talks about a few scenarios in which adaptability can be very useful for businesses and are in fact essential for businesses to survive in the modern global economy. But from an individual scientist perspective, this also makes a lot of sense. The first one is the ability to read and act on signals in a timely manner. You can hear a lot of businesses as they're trying to understand understand how to scale up their advertising and market to the right people, they would use different advertising platforms, for example, running Facebook ads, and they will see their business go up initially because they're reaching new demographics of people. But after a period of time, their audience and their number of clients is plateauing, really figuring out why. And it's only after a few months of running the same ads across all the platforms where they realize, well, hold on, we're actually wasting money on Facebook ads. All the people that we can reach through this marketing avenue 
has been exhausted. Let's pivot and try something else. If they've read the signal of the plateauing client base and went and looked at the analytics about how many people are being reached through Facebook ads in that particular quarter and they got that information a little earlier on, they could have saved a lot of their budget for, for marketing that quarter. The same applies to doing experiments. How we know if a failed experiment is failing because you're not asking the right question or if it's failing due to like a technical problem you did while setting up that experiment. And I think it comes down to doing a lot of things in parallel so that you're engineering the feedback into the design process. So instead of saying, I'm gonna do one experiment this week and depending on the result of that one experiment, I'm gonna go and do a second experiment next week. You should really be doing maybe not 10, let's say three experiments in parallel, each of which have something slightly different about them. And you will get three times the feedback in that same amount of time than just doing one single experiment. And you can engineer that process to collect feedback and react to the signal so that in week two, you've got a lot more information to make that decision than if you're just doing everything in a linear fashion, one experiment after the other. You need to be doing things in parallel so that the feedback and the signals you're getting from failure are also increasing and amplifying exponentially. That ties, of course, into the ability to experiment and not every business will have the appetite for risk that is inherent within experimenting all the time to see what processes might work a little bit better. We do this all the time in science. Every time we go in and do our day job, we are experimenting, but some experiments are riskier than others. Some experiments use reagents that are either very rare, maybe come from an atom model that took two years to develop, or use a drug that's so expensive that you only get one go at it. If you are not trying something completely out of the box, with regularity. If you're not factoring that into your design process every week, every month, every quarter, then you're actually doing yourself a disservice because some of the most interesting leads in science and innovation come from unexpected avenues of thought and just trying things out to see what would work. The same could apply in business. Is your team always playing it safe? Are you delegating a part of your budget to just trying new things out every month? Because if you're not, you can get very quickly entrenched into a standard operating protocol that suffocates and stifles innovation. And if your competitors are more game and they're more welcoming of risk, then they will be out competing you on an avenue that you don't even know exists before you know it. So we talked about leadership, we talked about time management, we talked about communication skills, we talked about adaptability. The final soft skill that I believe is most important to succeed as a scientist or really as anyone on the cutting edge of any industry is this. You have to know who you are. Being comfortable in your own skin is by far the most important soft skill that I've learned throughout the course of my career. And many of the leaders that I work with and respect, it is very clear they know who they are. The tides will change. What is currently in vogue will not be stylish or fashionable or even politically correct to do or say in the next month, in the next year. You need to know what your values are. You need to know what is important to you what is your priority? What is your vision statement? And what is your value proposition as an employee, as a boss, as a leader? This is something that only you can come up with of your own accord and no one can take it from you. And in the face of change, in the face of volatility, in the face of different kinds of signals that you're interpreting from your own experiments or from your competitors or from the market, if you don't know who you are, then you are no use to anyone. You will just be like a weather vane swinging back and forth and people won't be able to interpret the signals of your leadership because you yourself won't know what the direction of your leadership is truly going to be unless you know who you are. That is something that could be a lifelong pursuit, 
But what I would recommend, especially for early career academics, is don't just spend your entire life on work. If you are defined by your work, your work will let you down. Your work will disappoint you at some point in time. Or you are, at the end of the day, is that embodiment of work, then you're not bringing your full self into the workplace either, right? You do need to understand who you are if you take the work away. And the values that exist within your personal life need to bleed into your work life life as well. And it could be as simple as having a hobby that is in some way related, yes, to your work, but not at all required as part of your workplace. And what you find enjoyable from the hobby, what you think is valuable from that skill set that will inform your worldview and your vision statement. For me, after a lot of reflection, I am fundamentally a creative person. I infuse creativity into everything I do, into the teaching, into my style of communication, into my art design for thumbnails, into how I edit and shoot these videos, and any kind of solution that I like to implement, and also how I talk to and mentor people. I need a creative element to spark and inspire me, and I think that in turn has sparked and inspired the people that I talk to and the people that I teach. That is infused in every part of my work, and that informs my value proposition for employees. So unless you know who you are, you will not have that complete toolkit of soft skills and you will not be a successful leader in your domain and you won't be able to find success as a scientist or in whichever industry you find yourself in. I'm Jack. Hope to connect with you again in the next episode.